The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. To hear more amazing Alberta-made podcasts, visit albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornoyer. I'm Natalie Pond. I'm Tina Faze. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this episode on Sunday, December 15th, 2019, and we are thrilled to be joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhardt. Hey, hey Adam. Everyone. Nice to be here. Happy holidays. Same to you all. And for this special year-end episode, uh, we are thrilled to be also joined by two great panelists, uh, who one who's been on the podcast before and one who is brand new and we're excited to welcome to the Dave Berta podcast. So first of all, Natalie Pawn. Uh, is a conservative activist and former member of the United Conservative Party Interim Joint Board. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Great to have you. And Tina Faze, I'm excited to have on the podcast. Tina is a communications consultant and previously served as a press secretary and acting chief of staff during the NDP government. Welcome to the podcast, Thank Tina. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, excited it's, to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you guys on. I'm, I'm excited. So, 2019 was a big year in Alberta politics. I mean, it's been a big few years in Alberta politics, but 2019 specifically was a big year. Uh, We had a provincial election. We had a change in government. We had a federal election. um, And there's probably a dozen things in there that I could mention that happened in between and afterwards that were kind of big moments that uh, that we spent a lot of time talking about uh, over the past year. But we asked our listeners for their picks for the best of Alberta politics in 2019 in the third annual Best Developed Alberta Politics t- Survey. Woo. And I'm I'm very excited to say that more than 2,000 uh, uh, people voted in this survey, online survey. Uh, we had the first round where people could suggest their suggest names of, of uh, people uh, for the different categories. And then we took the top three picks, top three p- recommendations from each category, and we put it to a second round of voting, which ended last night. And yeah, more than 2,000 people, 2,000 of you voted, which is fantastic. So we're going to go through the results of the survey today. And... Uh, then I'll ask our guests what their picks are, and uh, and conversation will ensue. I, I, I assume. So, starting off, the first category: Who was the best MLA of 2019, according to listeners of the Daybird Podcast, for a third year in the re- third, third year in a row? And this probably tells you the political inclinations of our listenership. Rachel Notley, the MLA for Edmonton <laughs> Strathcona, has been chosen. That, that's a that's a what do they call that? A hat trick? It's a hat trick. Yeah, she's she's. Three for three. Three for three. Yeah. Okay. So congratulations, Rachel Notley. Uh, I think she won. Like I don't have the percentages in front of me, but I think it was pretty a pretty wide margin. The second, the the second place, second and third place. The two other people, uh, two other MLAs on the list were uh, Janice Irwin and Devin Dreeshen. So Janice Irwin, who's the MLA for Edmonton Highlands Norwood, and Devin Dreeshen, who's the MLA for Innisfail Sylvan Lake and Minister of Agriculture and Forestry. So. Congratulations to everyone who made the top three, and congratulations again to Rachel Notley. We'll have to bring her a, a, a certificate or something as, as a congratulations note. <laughs> so, diving in, who wants to go first? Tina, Natalie, your, who would who, be your pick for, uh, for best MLA of 2019? I picked Speaker Cooper. Ah, good choice. Yeah, you know, I, I was really, really looking forward to see what he was going to do with the job, and he hasn't disappointed. I think his ability to reach out and try to educate 
uh, Albertans about the job and parliamentary procedure and process has actually been really well done and something that he's really taken under his wing and 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 really embraced. And I think it's done a lot to help educate a lot of people. I just took a quick, quick scroll through his social media and it's full of just like videos of him explaining what um, the order papers are or uh, giving a tour of the legislature buildings. And I think these are things that when you when you actually think about what political nerds like us like, these are some of the things that are really interesting to hear about and are super cool. And he's got like a really cool orders of the day t-shirt that I've seen him wear a lot of the time. And I think it's just, he's really in his element here and, and he clearly knows his stuff. That is, that's a good choice. And yeah, I think that uh, I was really excited to see when he became speaker and started releasing those, those kind of t- tutorial, uh, how the legislature works videos on social media and, and just kind of demystifying the, uh, the speaker's office and demystifying the kind of the process that the legislature uses. And I mean, anybody who's watched a uh, question period or watched a debate in the legislature will, undoubtedly have seen his enthusiasm uh his uh, in in the kind of circus like environment he's kind of the ringmaster and uh, and i think he's thriving in that role which is quite uh, i mean he's obviously really into it but it's also quite entertaining because he's so enthusiastic about it and i think he's actually doing a really great job like i think he's he really means it when he says like he wants there to be decorum in the house like i i do think he is neutral in his role as a speaker as well like it's not overly clear if he's I mean, we know he's partisan, but I think he's doing a really good job in a part, uh, nonpartisan role. And even just things like explaining to people why certain mm-hmm. uh, house business items occur mm-hmm. on certain days and not others or explaining like, OK, private members bills only happen on these days or this is what a committee is. Uh, I think it really helps to educate the rest of us, too, when we have our conversations about politics and and what is actually going on in the legislature. Great. Uh, excellent choice. Yeah, that is an excellent choice because you're right. I mean, so much of the of what governs what happens in the House is set in those rules. And yet, anyway, in any time we can take to, like you said, they demystify the political process and get people interested in, um, in how we're governed, how we govern ourselves is so important. So that's a good choice. I mean, I thought about like the role of an MLA besides... Um, someone like Rachel Notley, who also has to be the official opposition and also is quite visible, and it's no doubt she would get that that vote, and she so wholeheartedly deserves it, is that you basically have to be active and present in your riding. You have to champion and advocate for your residents and for your constituents. You have to do a bunch of casework that is this sort of um, helping your constituents navigate the government processes and systems. That It's kind of all the stuff that you don't see that MLAs have to do, and it's a thankless work, so to speak. And I think in, and at the same time, you have to be an excellent communicator in the House. Um, you sit on committees. You have to also then advance your party's agenda and fundraise and do and be visible in your community. So in all of those ways, when I think about what an MLA has to do day to day, um, my vote would go. I have kind of a split vote, so I didn't kind of follow the rules. I didn't pick. No, that's person. fine. My vote would be for both David Shepard and um, Sarah Hoffman. So okay. I think both of them are so strong in doing all of those things. Um, it's hard for me to say because I worked with a lot of the MLAs and are friends with um, folks who sit on the opposition side. So um, I wish I could pick them all, but those two are ones that I've just seen and worked with and know how hard they work in that process. But I did want to squeak in kind of a nod to Heather Sweet as well, who I think just purely for the fact that she was able to reveal that the firing of the election commission, which I'm sure we'll get into later too, was not going to save Albertans money, which is like the government had said. And so that happened in her committee. And I so I just want to give her a shout out for that because that in and of itself alone was really important and kind of um, debunking the government's um, messaging on that. And in fact, we found out that it's going to cost $70,000 more. So go Heather. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, I think you, the points you raised about 
the character, kind of the characteristics of 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 how you describe a best the best MLA. People ask me this question all the time. Um, you you know who who is who are the best MLA? Who's the best MLA? And and it's it is a hard question to answer because mm. you're right. You don't know if, if you're paying attention to the legislature and the debates that are happening in the legislature and question period and committees and that kind of work. You're seeing only one side yep. of what MLAs do on a daily basis and. You don't necessarily, if you're watching that, you don't necessarily see the stuff that the MLAs are doing on the ground in their communities at home, uh, the the casework, the community outreach. Um, and I mean, it's, so there are some MLAs who are, who will be, who will excel and be and thrive at casework, at community yeah. outreach, at at reaching out to constituents and, and, and doing the groundwork. But they may not be at front and center or the stars in the yeah. legislature and vice versa. There may be someone who's great, you know, a, a great orator in the legislature, but they're not great at actually connecting with their constituents. And so, so it, it's kind of hard to, you know, un, un, unless you're, unless you can kind of see both, uh, both sides, it, it's really hard to, to pinpoint, yeah, who is the best MLA. So I, I always try, whenever, whenever someone asks me that question, I always hedge it with, uh, with that. It's like, well, you know, this is, this is what I see when I'm paying attention to Alberta politics and I may not be seeing, you know, MLA helping out seniors or people who are less fortunate or, uh, you know, people who are having problems with the healthcare system or with granting programs in, in their own in their own ridings. Yeah, there's so much that's unseen. And yeah. so there's the visible and the invisible. And so to bring both of those together, um, I mean, Janice obviously was also and I helped out on on her um, nomination campaign, full disclosure. And so she would she she's a name I should have in there as well, mm-hmm. for sure. Great. OK. Moving on to the next category. Who was the best cabinet minister of 2019? Now, there were three choices for this category, and I'm seeing if I can see if I can try to remember off the top of my head. Uh, there was uh, three that made it to the top three. Sarah Hoffman, who was deputy premier and minister of health under the NDP government. Uh, Shannon Phillips, who was minister of environment parks under the NDP government. And then I believe the third was Leela Ahir, who is minister of, see if I can get this right, culture and multiculturalism and status of women and status of women that's right there's a third one i was trying to remember because they used to have culture and tourism together so i was like it's not tourism because tanya fear has tourism in her portfolio now um now this was kind of an interesting category because uh it was best alberta cabinet minister of 2019 but as the listeners will have heard uh two of the cabinet ministers aren't necessarily cabinet ministers right now so Someone asked when I when I put out this survey. Someone asked, "Well, can we vote for NDP cabinet ministers?" And I said, "Well, yeah, they were cabinet ministers in 2019. Uh, so next year, uh, w- when we do the fourth annual uh, Dave Berta Best of Alberta Politics Survey, uh, this will likely be unless there's a big change in government, big big change in Alberta politics next year. Next year, this will likely be a a, a exclusively UCP category. But this year, uh, the uh, the NDP got two names on the list, and uh, I'm I'm proud to announce that." Uh, and congratulate Sarah Hoffman for winning this category. Sarah, who served as Deputy Premier and Minister of Health under the NDP government, and she's currently the MLA for Edmonton Glenora. And I believe she's now the opposition education critic. That's right. Yeah, and we talked about that a lot in the last episode with Michael Jans about how Sarah Hoffman, former chair of the Edmonton Public School Board, and is now education critic, and Adriana, Adriana Lagrange, a former Catholic school board trustee from Red Deer is now minister of education. So you kind of have this trustee on trustee mm-hmm. dynamic going on in uh, in the legislature debates on education. So turning it over to you, Natalie, who's your best, who's your pick for, for best cabinet minister of 2019? 
so I didn't even think to consider the NDP. Is that terrible? No, no, no. I, I took that to be uh, the... <laughs> yes, you're a horrible person, I'm not going to lie, I didn't look at the, the nominees. <laughs> but um, uh, my pick was actually none of those on the list, and it was uh, Minister of Children's Services, Rebecca Schultz, oh, okay. which I think might be a surprising pick to a lot of people. But um, I, I think that she's done a remarkable job considering she was handed an absolute dumpster fire of a file. This is not a file I would have wished on anyone with what's happened in the past few years, considering um, serenity and when you're in a government that's actually talking about just cuts across the board, the last place you want to be is in the Ministry of Children's Services. Like You don't want to be involved in that when you're talking cuts. And I think she's actually done a really good job handling that file, considering how bad it could possibly be, um, which... Is actually a huge compliment. I'm not. I'm not wording this mm-hmm. very well, but um, one thing that I think is a huge factor in my determination of this was like we don't see her or hear about her in the news a lot in a negative way, and I think that goes to show that her ministry and her press secretary are actually doing a pretty good job handling the questions that come out of pretty controversial decisions. They were doing a really good job fielding those questions, spinning the message in a way that allows them to actually tell their side of the story and not have other people tell it for them, and. I think she's handling it really well. From what I've been told by a lot of friends and staffers, she's actually quite good in QP as well. And, you know, it's not a it's not a file I would have wished on anyone. And I think she actually is a very talented person and is doing better than we could have possibly expected in this file. Great, great choice. Uh, you're right. It's, I mean, it has been a, a very challenging portfolio um, when you look over the past. I mean, the past few uh, ministers of of ministers of children's services it is it is quite challenging i'm thinking i'm going back all the way thinking all the way back to when manmeet bular was minister of children's services when the serenity issue came out and and having being put in the position where you have to uh you know present the government's position on this on this portfolio on this issue when you have this you know these real like literal literally life and death death situations that are happening it's hard it's heartbreaking the most awful things you could possibly imagine is what comes across this ministry's desk yeah um anything awful that happens with children and their families it's no one wants to deal with it but somebody has to and they're never the good happy stories that you're going to see this this ministry and this minister are only ever going to see the really sad awful things in this world and in this province and how they deal with them is there's never going to be the right way or like something that's going to completely solve the problem, but they have to do their best with what they're given. And I think they are. Great. Thank you. Tina. So I didn't see the three um, kind of shortlist questions. So that was the first question that popped into my mind is, you know, depends which part of 2019 we're talking about. And so pre or post election. And so Pre-election, um, Alberta had many fantastic ministers. I mean, I had the privilege of working with um, with them. And so it would have been hard for me to choose. I mean, there's um, Richard Fian, who is a minister of um, Indigenous Affairs. He's the first minister to hold that fo- portfolio to actually meet with all the um, Métis settlements and First Nations. Um, minister Christina Gray, who raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Um, Education Minister David Egan, who actually hired teachers and uh, preserve public education. Um, even Shannon Phillips, who as environment, I mean, she did a lot of things, but one of her lesser known um, achievements was actually creating the world's biggest, protecting the world's biggest boreal forest. And so these are all, oh, and I should actually mention Minister Billis, who created all those digital tax credits that, you know, all the tech companies <laughs> have been raving about that now that this minister is cutting. So, you know, it would have been, or, or Minister Sabir, frankly, who not only raised AISH, so says supports for people with um, severe disabilities, 
commodities, but he actually indexed into inflation. So, um, so those are my pre-election votes. But post-election, we did. We got a new, um, we got a bunch of new faces in the United Conservative um, Party's cabinet. But we got the same old kind of right-wing ideology. It's kind of neoliberal austerity. There's social conservatism, cronyism. So when I thought to myself, okay, who's the minister in this government that actually represents? Um, this government sort of cronyism and bullying, which has been, for me anyway, the theme, um, I give um, that prize to Justice Minister Schweitzer, Doug Schweitzer, right? So he set up um, Premier Kenny's snitch line. He has um, into un-Albertan activities. So, you know, basically criminalizing environmentalism and anyone who wants to have an intelligent opinion about our tar sands. He's appointed his country club friend and donor to um, head this inquiry, um, a bit of a witch hunt. It's a cushy $290,000 salary. And then fun fact, this guy turns out and hands over sole source contract to his um, son's law firm or, his, or firm where his son is a partner, almost a million dollar contract. Um, oh, yeah, he's kind of insulted the mayor of Calgary, calling him Trudeau's, minister, Trudeau's mayor in a very Donald Trump fashion. So oh, he's cut funding to legal aid. What else can I say? I mean, I could keep on going. Like, it's pretty dishonest, I think, for someone like him to, oh, yeah, say we're going to hire 300 new RCMP officers for rural Albertans and then make the towns pay for them, which means there's going to be probably property tax increases for rural Albertans. And at the same time, so it's pretty dishonest to run on not raising taxes and then uh, strong-arming local governments to do it for you. So to me, the best cabinet minister that can represent the sort of the ugly agenda we're seeing, that's my vote. So so Doug Schweitzer is your vote for the best worst cabinet minister is what, exactly. is what you're saying? Okay. Uh, um, I mean, I think th- in terms of Doug Schweitzer, I think it's interesting how he was – he positioned himself, like going back to the PC leadership race in 2017, where he almost jumped into the progressive conservative leadership race. And then then he eventually jumped into the United Conservative Party leadership race. He positioned himself as a, as like the progressive voice among the, uh, among the other candidates. Mm-hmm. So you had Jason Kenney and Brian Jean and then Schweitzer. Though I don't, I mean, I don't, I never really got the impression that he was actually that progressive because I mean what he was talking about during the I mean sure he didn't he doesn't have the baggage and he took Kenny to task over the GSA issue uh, over LGBTQ rights um, but then he was like now's the time to cut minimum wage down to 12 down to twelve dollars an hour so it was kind of like I, I didn't really like I saw him very much as a business conservative mm-hmm. like on social issues he's mm-hmm. you know he's not a social obviously not a social conservative but he's very much a he is very much a partisan, and I'm, that's one of the things I find really interesting about this government. And maybe it's a, a blind spot of mine. But I, I don't think that the NDP they didn't feel as kind of uh, uh, combatively partisan as this government does, as some of these cabinet ministers do. Um, Doug Schweitzer, in particular, with his kind of combativeness with Nahid Nenshi, and I understand like the UCP doesn't like Nahid Nenshi, and Conservative, the conservative movement or establishment in Calgary has tried three times to defeat him and haven't succeeded so far uh, in the Calgary mayoral elections. Um, but it it does seem kind of like unnecessarily combative in some places, especially, I mean, the Minister of Justice kind of picking a fight with the mayor of Calgary just seems kind of uh, unnecessarily combative. And I mean, this is kind of part of the, I think, part of a daily strategy of, of shaping the political narrative, the media narrative every day and creating a story. So, you know, while the UCP was 
implementing their implementing their political program. Uh, the real news coverage of the day of that day was about Doug Schweitzer picking a fight with Nahid Nenshi. And, 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 you know, and I mean, not, not to say that like Nenshi is like the innocent one in this because he thrives on this kind of stuff. And yeah, he, like, yeah. he's, he's doing yeah. his part. In yeah, absolutely. Continuing like, this little feud. Yeah. yeah. There's this, it's, he's competitive as well. So like, he's definitely a player in this. It's not like he's innocent, not hidden. Nenshi. um, you know, he's very much a combative, combative kind of mayor, uh, very different than what kind of, than what we see here in Edmonton with, with Don Iveson kind of taking a more, more of a diplomat, what I, what I would call more of a diplomatic approach with dealing with the provincial government, even though he's dealing with the same kind of policy and kind of budget or very similar policy and budgetary um, issues that the city of Calgary is dealing with. The Calgary City Council is kind of its own totally own beast. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't think you can you can actually disagree um, very uh, vociferously against policy positions, and you not necessarily need to be diplomatic, but you can be respectful. And I think, I mean, I had no shortage of worst, best cabinet ministers to pick because um, our minister, Justice, is not the only one who's taken this very combative, um, name-calling, petty, um, and sort of petulant approach to governing and just calling out their enemies. I mean, in politics, you always need an enemy. You need something to be running against at the same time. But, um, I, I mean, this crew just takes it to the next level. And so, um, and it's, an, it's unbecoming, especially of a justice minister. You know, I... This is a weird topic to also be discussing, mostly because like I don't think it's just the UCP that are that are the bad guys in this. Like I think the the opposition is just as much to blame, and I think they're the ones that's largely driving the 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 negativity beyond behind this. I, I think it's hard to not be uh, you know really passionate when you are the government and in defending yourself mm-hmm. when all you hear nonstop every day is like, oh, you're a crook, you're a criminal, you're a liar, you you want to kill babies, you like it's. There's this constant nonstop attack against them. And at some point, like, we're all human. You just break. There's there's only so much um, civility you can have uh, towards someone or to the opposition when all you're getting in return is negativity. Uh, Rachel Notley screams incessantly during question period at the government. Um, staffers have told me that um, in private, uh, opposition MLAs actually accuse them of committing crimes. Uh, in government. And so there is this back and forth that we also don't see a lot Mm. of when we're on the sidelines of what's maybe pushing ministers and staffers to act a certain way. And it doesn't make it okay. But I think it's a mistake to say like, okay, it's just the UCP that are the problem here because it takes two to tango. And they're not just being angry for no reason. Like there is something that we're not seeing as well that's also driving this that a lot of us are also hearing about. Yeah, there's certainly a tone, uh, a real tone uh, that between the two parties between the opposition and the government that I think is is driving part of this. I think that it feels like government has become more partisan. Um, it and I I I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my my pick for not necessarily best cabinet minister but probably most important or most interesting cabinet minister in a second. But um, I'm 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 skipping ahead in my mind and I just want to put this thought down and we'll talk we'll talk about it at the at the end of the questions. But um, I think that the thing that frustrates me the most about um, both the government and the opposition, and and kind of how the how the NDP opposition is handling their their first few months in opposition is they they haven't got out of this uh, mindset of chasing the scandal of the day or chasing the controversy of the day. And this was basically kind of defined. It felt like it defined their campaign during the 2019 election. It was constantly chasing a scandal. You know, if if we just find the right scandal, this will do Jason Kenney in, and 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 they'll get reelected. And it's like it was 
seemed very clear from the watching from the outside that no, that's actually, I mean, yeah, it'll, it might hurt them and it might convince a couple people to vote for you, more to vote for you, and it might swing some seats, but like, this is not going to make the big difference. Chasing the the chasing the the controversy around. Oh, someone said something on controversial on Facebook, so let's spend the whole day talking about that. And it's like, well, you're not actually offering uh, a offering an alternative to what the UCP are promoting. Or you know, and even now with with the like, I look at the NDP's um, the NDP's alternative budget that they put out like a month after the. Fed provincial budget came out, which I don't really understand what, what the shadow point. Shadow budgets what, are dumb. Shadow budget, yeah, it, it is dumb, and it was clearly. <laughs> I mean, I think it was something that the NDP promised that they were said they were going to do, and then they probably realized, man, this is a giant waste of time. And then the UCP started calling them out on it after weeks later, saying, "Well, where's that shadow budget you promised? To, you know, you were going to release." So then they released something, but even then, I don't necessarily think it was like. It wasn't answering the questions that Albertans are and are asking and are looking for. It's not. It wasn't. They weren't providing a kind of. And I mean, I understand this is early days. We have three years, three and a half years till the next election. But, but presenting a kind of uh, a um, an inspirational alternative that people can buy into. Like they're not advertising unicorns and butterflies and rainbows. Like they are coming off just as angry. And I mean, I, I am a conservative, but. It, if I were looking for an alternative, like I'm certainly not seeing it with the NDP, it's, it's almost like they'd be the only choice if you were voting anyway, but conservative, and maybe that's the strategy. Uh, but to your point about politics being more partisan, I think that really started in 2015 after the fall of this PC dynasty of 40 some years, where it was basically the only way you could be in government or get elected as an MLA was to be a PC. So there wasn't as much mm-hmm overt partisanship in government, I think, just because there wasn't really that opportunity to. It was just a given that the PCs were going to form government. Uh, Now that we've actually had two other, two new parties, essentially, enter that political fold and and form government, I think now we're actually seeing what actually exists in a lot of other provinces that we've just largely been immune from in Alberta for a very long time. So it's no longer the kind of conservative monolith that we had before. Now, do you think that's because, and I'm like, do you think that's because of the Wild Rose Party influence in the UCP? Because the Wild Rose Party, in opposition, they were always a lot, like it was very much always an attack mode against the progressive conservatives. Like, do you think that the t- partisan tone change, was that was part of it? Or do you think that was a reaction to losing power in 2015? And, I think it's all of those things combined. Like there, yeah. the opposition never really existed during the PC government, right? There was nobody to hold the government to account. There was no... I guess, opposition style that we can compare to. Um, When it was the Wild Rose opposition against the PCs, it was conservatives arguing against conservatives. Mm -hmm. Not really much of a... I actually think the partisanship is because this is a government that actually has a very deep ideological bent. And so when they're being... And so they are on a mission to execute it in a very fierce and fast, furious way. And so to to be... opposed in any sort of fashion means they have to fight back. And so they're on this path to just bulldoze their way through this um, political project of theirs. I think that's one of it. Um, I think I would I would kind of respectfully disagree with Natalie on sort of where the negativity began. I think um, Jason Kenney began it 18 months before he even took over the leadership. I mean, he ran against um, Premier um, Notley and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in the and vilified both of them in this Trudeau-Notley alliance and just sort of the ugliness and the negativity and the fears he was able to stoke against them started there. And so uh, 
and in his governing style, I'm not surprised that it's any different and that his ministers are falling in line, even though they may have presented somewhat more um, moderate previously. Okay. Now, I feel like we've we've gone into this the th- into the third question by talking about op- talking about opposition. So I might as well just say just segue into there. Uh, best opposition MLA of 2019. Uh, there were three people who made the uh, three three candidates who made or three M- M- MLAs who made made the cut. Uh, and uh, I guess not surprisingly, when you judge how strong the results were in the first category we talked about, the uh, the best opposition of MLA. A best opposition MLA of 2019, according to uh, uh, people who filled out the survey, listeners of the podcast, is Rachel Notley, the MLA for Edmonton Strathcona. Surprise, surprise. So <laughs> <laughs> that was my pick. That was your pick. Yeah. Okay. That was mine. Okay. Tina. Um, I actually chose um, Shannon Phillips, who's our former environment minister and now MLA for Lethbridge West. Um, I think is finance critic. She's done an excellent job of keeping the focus on this government's massive multi-billion dollar, 4.7 billion, I believe is the number, um, giveaway to big profitable uh, corporations. Um, because this is, um, the government's fighting a class war. And it's um, and so she, in that role as finance critic, does um, a critical job, as, as do the whole caucus, but specifically her to kind of keep the focus on that. She doesn't suffer fools, as we all um, know. Um, and we need that now, right? I mean, if there's one thing that's emerged from the last, I don't know, how long has it been, eight, nine months of this UCP government in power is that they, um, like we talked about earlier, there's kind of this bullying approach to their governing style. It's very... Um, it's combative, and so they regularly attack and try and silence um, dissidents. They, um, with threats like of the public inquiry to anyone who possibly dares to oppose this oil patch, name calling, insulting the mayor. We've touched on that. They've lashed out at Amnesty International um, for calling their snitch line what it is, anti-democratic and sort of um, a risk to human rights. They call the cops on you, as I believe the Minister of Education did just a couple of days ago, a bunch of families and kids protesting her closed door meeting. Um, on her invite-only meeting on choice for education. And so, and they're basically strong-arming other democratically elected levels of government, specifically municipalities and school boards. And they flat out lie. So this is, um, so these are all the tactics that basically disempower people. They extract submission. um, They conflate dissent with disloyalty. And it takes strong opposition MLAs like Shannon Phillips to fight back, right? And lastly, for me, I think she's just one of the N- few NDP MLAs outside of Edmonton and Calgary. Mm, from Leverage Le- West. Yeah. Right. And it's an important role in keeping and building that kind of support for the NDP and essentially just being an opposing voice outside of the big cities, especially in southern Alberta. So on those two counts, she gets my vote. But it's, um, it's, um, there, are, there are many good picks, people to pick from. Okay, I think I think Shannon Phillips is a very interesting choice. I think she, I think that I was kind of surprised. I mean, I was kind of surprised, and I wasn't when they announced that she was going to be the finance critic because she is a very interesting pick to put against to put up uh, as a critic to Travis Taves, who is like one of the more mild-mannered uh, cabinet ministers and very much. Kind of, I mean, he's he 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 appears to be out of the kind of partisan fray. Like he very much seems like, like mature, like an adult in the room yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So while <laughs> like while some cabinet ministers are arguing on Twitter, it's like he kind of seems like he's above that. Um, and uh, and and coming from his his background, he's a far cattle farmer. Was president of the cattle cattlemen cattle ranchers association. Like he he mm, seems I didn't know that. he seems like a serious person. He's not just like a person who ran for politics because he was a party 
activist or a party archetype kind of thing. He's actually um, got like a really impressive resume behind him. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he actually he kind of reminds me of and and he kind of reminds me of Ed Stelmack in in a in a, in a way just in terms of his mm. and I mean depending on 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 how you feel about Ed Stelmack that's either a good thing or a bad thing but it it's uh it the mild mannered part is is kind of 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 just the way he presents himself he kind of uh, he it does he does give the appearance that he's kind of the the adult in the room. But the UCP platform, I mean, res- aside from the fact that they have put someone who is yes v- diplomatic and respectful in that role mm-hmm. as a finance minister, is that the the platform um, and the McKinnon report that ensued after that we all knew what was going to be in it before it was even put together said that this is what the fight would be on. Oh, this yeah. would yeah, be yeah. Um, that this government has a class position, and it's going to be on um, this essentially on a program of austerity, privatization, deregulation, and we need people like Shannon to actually fight back against that, regardless of who's who's across the aisle from you. Yeah, she's she's uh, well-spoken. She's passionate, for sure. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, I, I think she's she's an interesting, actually probably quite a good foil to uh, uh, to Travis Taves in mm-hmm. the legislature, um, I have to have to going. Been, I've been watching a bit of bish, a bit of Question Period. I usually don't watch Question Period because it's mostly I find mostly kind of a waste of time. Uh, but I'll have, I'm interested to see going into the spring how she reacts to the uh, and how she in, engages with him going into the next next budget. So, Natalie, you chose Rachel I, Notley. I, I did. And, 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 I, and, I guess and, I'm just confused by what Tina was saying about silencing dissidents and and class warfare, and I'm just confused by that because I don't think the NDP was exactly innocent in how they were acting in government as well. They openly used the line, like, tax the rich, which I think is inherently also uh, class war as well. Um, but there's nothing wrong with of, saying tax the, the but rich. Their, their lack of regard for unemployment in the oil and gas sector was very evident over four years. Um Basically, the lack of regard for economic underpinnings of the entire economy was their entire four years. So I digress. We don't need to go into that. However, <laughs> I just need to say that um, I picked Rachel Notley, and I actually have very nice things to say about someone across the aisle um, who I don't necessarily agree with politically. So um, I think it's really tough to go from being premier to being leader of the opposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, to go from government to opposition just sucks, let alone being from going from premier to opposition. And she's done a really good job of it. And I think that really speaks um, to her skill as a parliamentarian and as a politician as well. Shows how much she cares about this province, about the riding she represents and about her party. And and so I give her a lot of kudos to that as well. Uh, I think it's also really hard to stay on as the leader, especially after you formed government, had a majority, were premier, and then you lost. And so you, true. So we're true. a one-term premier. I, it goes against convention to actually stay on as leader of the opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it says a lot about her talent that no one's actually questioned that she needs to step down as leader, they need to find a new leader. So it either says a lot about her or says that the NDP doesn't really have a deep bench and no one can replace her. Either way, I think it speaks to her value in the party, and that's sure. why I chose her as the best opposition MLA in 2019. Okay, I, I agree. I think uh, she is in a lot of ways. I mean, the, you know, I don't not to downplay the uh, the work that other opposition MLAs do, but it was very clear that like she was one of their strongest. The like, going through the election and looking at the the legislature as they as they've gone into opposition as, as they've taken up the role of the opposition, it's very clear that she is their strongest asset. She is the uh, is the New Democratic Party in Alberta. I mean, even you go back to the provincial election. I mean, I spent a lot of time driving through rural Alberta. 
there were more Rachel Notley signs even in 2019 than there were, you know, the local can- the local NDP candidate signs. And that's because she was she was one of their strongest assets. I think without her, the party is nothing. They yeah. probably won't fundraise as well. They won't do as well electorally. And so as much as it's, I'm sure it's hard to to not be uh, what is premier's office 307 these days, mm-hmm. I, it's hard as it's. Yeah to not be in the premier's office and it is to be the leader of the yeah. opposition. She's doing a really good job and the NDP will really suffer if at any point the membership or caucus decides that she should no longer be the leader. I agree. And I, it's interesting that the, uh, I, so on election night, I went to the NDP's campaign party at the, I think it was at the Shaw Conference Center. And it was like the most, like, uh, like the, obviously there were people who were disappointed that they didn't, were, they weren't reelected as government, but like, I've been to opposition opposition election night parties and in Alberta. You almost said victory. And, yes, I, and I've been to one one opposition victory party. I went I went to the NDP's uh, uh, big party at the Westin in 2015, and that was like in its own world, right? Like they'd never experienced anything like that before. But but I've been to ones in the past that have been like basically like wakes, and it's been dismal, and usually it's disappointing, and people try to celebrate the moral victories, which usually means that they lost seats. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the great moral victory of, of 2008, I'm remembering. Um, but uh, 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 this party was, a, people were generally in a good mood. I think that the NDP won 24 seats or 23 seats and that was a lot more than they were expected to win at the very beginning of the campaign even though they didn't form government so you're right traditionally most party leaders resign after they lose but i think with rachel notley there might be an exception to the rule if she decides to stay and run in 2023 as as their leader and and i mean good for them if she does because she's probably in the best position out of anyone but it'll be very interesting Mm -hmm. to see if she doesn't decides not to um I know there's been rumors that maybe she'll get appointed as uh, ambassador to Washington or something. Prime Minister Trudeau will choose. There's been rumors going around. Uh, I don't know how true those are. Hey, we love a good re- leadership race. Yeah, yeah. Well, then that would be very interesting to see uh, to see who uh, who would step up. And I mean, the two people that come to mind immediately are are Sarah Hoffman and Shannon Phillips. Well, isn't so. it interesting too? Now that you say that appointments that other leaders of other opposition parties are no longer leaders of those parties as well. They let themselves uh, get appointed by the CP government into various That's right. positions that probably are much more financially, I don't even know where I'm going with that, Just probably pay better, probably have a better <laughs> life than leading like a third or fourth party. And that's Stephen Mandel, who's now the who was the former leader of the Alberta party, who's now the on the Alberta Health Services board. That's and right. then Greg Clark, who I don't, he was appointed to some position and I can't remember like off the top of my head. some big board, yeah. Yeah, like, the, like it was like a small business position or something, yeah. advisory position or something. Which, I mean, for a losing MLA who was once the leader of the Alberta party and was basically pushed out, like he landed himself a pretty good job. They're good for him. Pretty I good mean, gig. I think if, to me, it just shows me that the Alberta party was essentially a small C conservative party to have been able to absorb both of those um, folks. And, and I think it's a brilliant move for Premier Kenny to be able to essentially neutralize any slight glimmer, tiny hope of some centrist, conservative-ish, small-c party um, reforming. So on both those fronts, it's um, it's not surprising. Yeah, I, I, I don't think the Alberta party knows what it is, but I think I think Stephen Mandel and Greg Clark, I mean, Stephen Mandel, it was a conservative, moderate conservative, some conservatives would call him a liberal. Greg Clark was a moderate conservative liberal type right the um, centrist yeah. they didn't have yeah. a chance at re-election though like no. th- let's be quite honest like they didn't even come close to getting any seats yeah 
in This is the Alberta the party we're talking yes, about. Yes, the Alberta yeah. party, my favorite topic. <laughs> we haven't talked about the Alberta... <laughs> you know, when Ryan was on this podcast, we used to talk about the Alberta party every episode, and it was like his favorite topic. I'm taking up the mantle. But we haven't talked about them for like the past three or four episodes, I think. So Was it so. the last time I was on? It might have been, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so and they, they don't have a new leader party. yet. I hear no, they're... and like, they, they're, here's the thing. As, as the two pa- uh, past leaders of the Alberta party, they allowed themselves to be appointed to government boards and agencies by the UCP, who they were running against, who they were saying was super evil and we need to defeat them and blah, 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 we're so much better. Yet, clearly they weren't that committed to their party or their cause if they're now letting themselves, you know, get That's some exactly great point. boards I don't and think appointments. They're that different. Like, like, clearly they don't think they have a chance of beating them. And it's pretty self-serving to, I mean, good for them. I would probably do the same if I was going to be leader of a losing party. But, like, go take the job that's going to be better for you rather than trying to be the, the hero and take this party from being the disaster that it is now to trying to be the opposition party or try to form government, which will never happen. So, uh, yeah, to I don't even know where I'm going with this. But... Uh, we don't really have any other opposition parties now besides the NDP. I think that was my point. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by A Tale of Two Weeklies, a new podcast series that digs into the rise and fall of Edmonton's C Magazine and View Weekly, two alt-weeklies engaged in a newspaper war that neither survived. Take a listen. It was a newspaper war. Good old-fashioned <laughs> knockdown, drag-out newspaper war. I think we were really good at uh, winning jackpots with lousy hands. I'm the type of person who cringes at pretty much everything I've ever done, ever. Um, Yeah, my whole career is a series of regrets. For 26 years, two rival magazines existed as the alternative weekly press in one mid-sized Canadian prairie city. The rivalry was was like the only thing we cared about and we were we were soldiers in that ongoing um battle i just considered us sort of like this like special world of people who happened to be lucky enough to be able to do this it was really fun <laughs> even though it made me miserable and, and eventually left me feeling sort of broken a tale of two weeklies is the story of view weekly and c magazine Two papers that ran in Edmonton between 1992 and 2018. The podcast covers their rise, glory days, notorious rivalry, and eventual decline. Listen at taleoftwoweeklies.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The series is created by the team behind I Don't Get It and is funded by the Edmonton Heritage Council. Search for A Tale of Two Weeklies wherever pods are cast or visit taleoftwoweeklies.com. I started listening last week, and I love it. And not only because I used to write for C and View, but because it's a really interesting and unusual story. Check it out at taleoftwoweeklies.com. This episode of the Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by TELUS World of Science Edmonton, home of the Canadian debut of Marvel Universe of Superheroes. The exhibition runs until February 17th, so there's still plenty of time to see it. Edmonton is actually the first and so far only Canadian city to host it, and it features more than 300 artifacts, costumes, props, and interactive elements that bring the Marvel Universe to life. You can travel through the mysterious mirror dimension of Doctor Strange, digitally transform into Iron Man, and even pose for selfies with Black Panther, Spider-Man, and other iconic Marvel characters. Buy your tickets today at tellusworldofscienceedmonton.ca. 
That's tellusworldofscienceedmonton.ca. Okay, and and speaking of uh, of opposition and other MLAs, we're gonna we're gonna move on to category four, question four. Who is the up and coming MLA to watch in twenty twenty? And listeners of the pod chose Janice Irwin, the MLA for Edmonton Highlands Norwood, as the up and coming MLA to watch in twenty twenty. And uh, I, I'm gonna give you my uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna sneak in here and give you my choice. My my choice is my picks for this category. Before I ask you guys, uh, Janice Irwin was definitely at the top of my list. Uh, she is my MLA, and she is everywhere. Um, like in terms of uh, reaching like outreach in the constituency, she's going to like seven or eight events every day. It's wild how how connected she is and how focused she is on outreach. Um, the other MLA I would say from the opposition side is Racky Pencholi who mm. uh, is the new MLA for Edmonton White Mud and I think is quite um, incredibly well-spoken in the legislature, um, has been quite a strong uh, addition to the opposition. She is. Yeah. Um, going kind of into the weeds, and this is someone who doesn't really have a profile, uh, like a big public profile, even in the legislature, um, but someone that I watch, and the reason why I watch, I always keep an eye on the back government backbench MLA who's appointed to Treasury Board. Because there's usually like Treasury Board is like the mm, the, the, the the finance committee, mm-hmm. and usually the, the from what I've been watching, even when the NDP were in government and when the PC, I think when the PCs were in government before that, it's usually mostly cabinet ministers, like seven or eight cabinet ministers, and then one backbench MLA who's appointed, like government MLA who's appointed mm-hmm. to Treasury Board, and the current backbench government MLA is Jay, someone by the name of Jason Stephen, who's the UC, Jason Stephen or Jason Stefan. I'm sorry if I'm, I'm getting your name mixed up. He's the UCP MLA for Red Deer South. And he was the president or the head of like the Red Deer Taxpayers Association, like basically the Canadian Taxpayers Assess, uh, Federation for Red Deer. And he's now on the Treasury Board. So doesn't have much like public profile, at least in Edmonton or even in the legislature. I can't even recall. Like, I don't know. I'm not even sure I'd know what the guy looks like. I can't even recall him speaking in the legislature, but because he's on Treasury Board, he's definitely someone who I am watching, not necessarily as an up-and-coming MLA, uh, but someone to watch in 2020. I didn't even know he was a UCP MLA, so there you go. Me neither. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Probably the first time we've mentioned him on the pod. Okay, uh, Natalie, who's your pick? I picked the Associate Minister of Natural Gas, Dale Nally. Okay. Uh, I think the natural gas file is really going to be what makes or breaks this province in the next few years, um, both from an economic and an environmental perspective. Um, Alberta has access to huge pools of natural gas and gas liquids, and also at some of the lowest prices in the world, which I think is a a massive opportunity for Alberta going forward. Um, This could be, you know, really great for the economy and the environment going forward, and especially because there is this this new surge in demand for petrochemical products. So um, for... I mean, for anyone that's been following the news in the world for the last couple of months or years, there has been this shift away from single-use plastics. And petrochemical products, like those made from natural gas, can actually contribute to the creation of recyclable plastics and reducing those single-use plastics. And uh, there was a plant that is being built just outside of Edmonton that's going to create some of these polypropylene products as well. And so I think that this is just one example of a huge opportunity that this this ministry in this file could have in Alberta, especially if it wants to start changing the perspective of people's opinions of oil and gas in Alberta, what it can do, how it can actually contribute to uh, improving our economic situation, our environmental situation. Uh, and, you know, Dale has done, seemingly done pretty well so far. I think it's 
it's pretty new as a file. I don't think this actually it's, existed yeah, before. New, yeah. So you're kind of creating this job from scratch, which is never easy. Um, but I think if he continues to handle this file well, it could actually be a really crucial part of not only the ECP creating a, a pretty strong you know, start to an environmental plan, but also as part of their economic re- recovery plan that they've been uh, pitching as well. That's super interesting. Thank you. Um, I think my pick kind of piggybacks of not nicely off what N- Natalie said, but in, in, a, in a completely different way in that I am actually picking nobody. Um, I find it really hard to select anyone when every single MLA, both parties in our legislature, essentially support building more pipelines and burning more fossil fuels. Um, the climate crisis for me personally is the single most um, urgent issue facing our province, our planet, and it's really a culmination of all the other things that I really care about, especially kind of inequality, racial and gender injustice, um, reconciliation with indigenous peoples. It all kind of comes together. So for me, any support for one more pipeline, one more oil or gas well, one more train car is a delay in rapidly decarbonizing our economy and moving away from um, the way we've been doing business in this province for, for decades and essentially saving ourselves. So for me, any climate delay is climate denial. And so, um, and the science is just so crystal clear. I mean, it's just so irrefutable that we basically barely have a decade to avert um, climate catastrophe. And meanwhile, um, we have a house full of people who publicly are cheerleading um, pipeline being built. And so I've, I've, yeah, I've kind of really struggled to pick somebody. So, I mean, I personally think we need less plastics, not more. And so the less we put this stuff out there and we kind of switch how we do things is, is so important. I mean, even last week, you mentioned the the shadow budget that the NDP put out. Um, the number one priority on there is build TMX pipeline. Um, number two priority is expand the oil and gas sector to do exactly what Natalie said, um, to ramp up petrochemical um, production in what I feel is a sunset industry and needs to be if we're going to survive. And so... Um, I would much rather see ambitious, courageous leadership coming out of the House um, where folks are advocating for a Green New Deal, kind of rapidly transitioning us to a clean and green um, energy system and economy in a way and in in a scale and speed that the science demands. And right now, I don't see anybody in the House that's doing that. You know, I've, I mean, some days I have to say, having worked at the legislature and a political staffer, I'm kind of in disbelief at how much our NDP government was did the heavy lifting on essentially making a petro-nationalist argument and convincing the rest of Canada that um, that Alberta's oil and gas, the prosperity of this sector, is crucial to the prosperity of this of the country, which it is not. And we kind of essentially did that work for them the last sort of 18 months in government. And there was this one line that... Um, Premier Notley kind of, um, like, I mean, she was just so successful at it, so much so that we convinced the prime minister to buy a rusty, leaky pipeline um, with our public dollars. I mean, it's just mind-boggling to me looking back at what we were able to do. And so, and she was so good at it. It worked so well. I mean, there's this one line that she said in so many speeches in Ottawa, Vancouver, uh, Toronto, wherever she went across the country. And she, the line was that basically that there isn't a um, school, hospital, road, or bike lane that isn't in Canada that doesn't owe something to this energy industry. And it just broke my heart every time I heard her say that, knowing what we know about the science and knowing that ambitious um, agenda of a Green New Deal that she could have put forward. And so I kind of lament that. And when 
I mean, right now, this oil and gas industry is, what, 7% of Canada's GDP. It's maybe 4% of jobs across the country, including direct and indirect jobs. And so um, it's actually not. And um, it's not um, crucial to the country's prosperity. In fact, it's hurting us. And when we have this economic opportunity facing in front of us of building um, thousands of green jobs and making sure we can transition oil and gas workers, make sure we don't leave these workers behind. And so... With all of that said, I just I, I struggle to pick somebody knowing what we're facing is a house full of pipeline cheerleaders right now. It's amazing what you say when you want to win an election, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's that's a good point. Um, the the it, it did feel like over the four years the NDP were in government, but especially the last like two years that they were so focused on an issue that was like not a winning issue for the NDP. It was like I remember going to a one of the big like Canada action or rally for resource rallies at the legislature. And uh, the, there were, God, there must've been a dozen NDP MLAs there or more. And there was, I think Darren Billis spoke and there were cabinet ministers there. And I think they were even wearing like the I heart uh, Canada oil or Canada oil and gas hoodies or some of them might've been. And I remember thinking like, you guys aren't like, this is not like, this is not an issue that your voters are, are, are that is going to engage your voters. And the people who are at that uh, at that rally, at that event, are not, for the most part, are not going to vote NDP. And it just seemed like you just need, they weren't, they were focusing on pipelines. They were focusing, which I mean, like, as a political issue, it, I think it was would, probably would have been very difficult for Rachel Notley not to focus on pipelines. But, but like, know, but but like to the extent that they did was just like, this is not an issue that is going to win for you. Like, they, but that's the thing. That's the only way, though, that they could have possibly formed government in 2019. Because, see, I don't even think so. Well, I, yeah, I don't even because agree I think that. they needed to act as a foil to what Jason Kenney was saying when he came into the fold. You know, with his five-point plan back in what was it, 2016, mm-hmm. 2017, when he tried to run for PC leader, one ran for the merger between the two parties, ran for UCP leader. All of these things basically started a conversation about, like, what are we going to do to reinvigorate Alberta's economy? What are we going to do there? And the argument, and overwhelmingly supported, was, like, let's get people back to work. Let's build pipelines. And so the NDP couldn't just ignore that. But instead, they chose to also be like, yeah, we should build pipelines. We should support this. So they didn't exactly propose like an alternative. Mm-hmm. They kind of were just like, yeah, what he says, but like we're better in all these other ways that aren't really true and are kind of strawman arguments, but we're better and we're going to do the same thing, but be less racist or something like that. Like that seems to be what the argument the NDP tried to put forward was uh, to get reelected. And I mean, to, bo- to both your point, exactly. I mean, this is what you say if you need to get reelected, but I don't even think that's the way to get reelected because as you said, Dave, it just, just as the shadow budget, the platform itself, though it had tons of great um, social policy ideas in there, there were so many progressive, great things for mm-hmm. average families in Oh my there. God, childcare. Yes. Childcare. Like the NDP didn't even talk about that during the election, $25 a day childcare. It was just like, this is one of the, anyway, this is my, well, my be, the B in my bottom. I mean, this is one of the so strongest many. policies the they had. were not good in this election. No, Let's be real. Like they no. really did not do a good job at being social democrats no but when they, they were chasing controversy every day right mm-hmm. it was chasing controversy and it wasn't it was like well what's the ndp campaign about well well they were so focused on jason kenny yeah. like they could not take off the kenny blinders it was full-on like kenny derangement syndrome and they just let him get in their heads and i think that was ultimately the downfall i agree okay moving on who was the best candidate? Speaking, well, so, okay, speaking of the next election, this is good. We're talking and we, we're just like going into the next category. Who was the best candidate who didn't win in the 2019 Alberta election? 
re, uh, listeners of Day Berta chose Daniel Larravee, the MLA for Lesser Slave Lake, and I believe who was Minister of Children's Services uh, uh, within the last few years of the uh, of the NDP government. And status of women. And, status, and, and uh, municipal, municipal affairs. affairs. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And that's actually my pick as well. So, okay. um, yeah, I didn't know that was um, that was what listeners and um, your readers had said as well. Um, she's also a registered nurse and midwife. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I had the opportunity of working with her, and she's just thoughtful. She's kind. She's genuine, um, very smart and strategic. And, I mean, she led the response to the Fort McMurray wildfires. And then, um, Natalie, as you said earlier, then she took on the ministry that nobody wants, which was Children's Services, which um, Premier Notley created, to deal with the, the difficult files of children in care um, and, um, and some of the most vulnerable people that, um, in the province. And, and she was a strong minister of status of women, which, frankly, which, from what I can gather, has all been essentially dismantled by Jason Kenney, by the way. I think it's like a unit of like two, maybe a dozen or two people now. Um, and um, gender-based analysis isn't happening, but maybe that's a different conversation. Uh, but I absolutely wholeheartedly agree that Daniel Larve is um, was one of the best candidates who didn't win. And I sincerely hope there is more politics in her future, either as an MLA or minister, um, and, and, and in the labor movement as the nurses gear up for fight. Yep. Yeah, she's now first vice president of United Nurses of Alberta. Ah. Yeah. Natalie. Your pick. My pick was the UCP candidate in Edmonton McClung, Lori Moseson. Okay. Uh, I can only imagine that she would have put in, she would have been put in as like justice minister or some other big ministry. I think um, objectively, I mean, I, she's a personal friend. I ran her nomination campaign, so I obviously mm-hmm. think very highly of her. But I think that she was probably one of the most skilled people the UCP had run for them in terms of uh, professional achievements and backgrounds and and knowledge and experience. She was a former citizenship judge, uh, prosecutor for the provincial and federal governments. Uh, She was very involved in the community, not only with um, the synagogues here in Edmonton, but also with um, various other not-for-profits and charities. Um, Not only that, to one of my earlier points, she wouldn't be on Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> like, she would not be spending time on social media. That would not be what she cares about. Like, she's not an overly partisan person. She's not a confrontational person. She literally ran because she had retired a few years ago. And she's like, you know what? I think I can do some good in this world. Like, I think I should run for office. And, th- that and that's a why good she ran. To run. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why she would have run. And, you know, with a lot of politicians, like, being an MLA or an MP is going to be the best job they ever have in their life. Lori's already had that. She's retired. She's had her career. So to take yourself out of retirement when you've got young grandchildren, the only reason that you could possibly do that is because you actually want to make a difference. And that's what I saw on her. And I just think that it's a huge loss to the UCP and to this province Mm -hmm. to not have someone like Lori Moses in, in our government. Yeah, she was definitely one of the candidates I was watching in the 2019 election. Yeah, she ran an Edmonton McClung, um, uh, wasn't successful, uh, but certainly would have been, I mean, definitely would have been in cabinet, I think. Uh, And this is one of the things I struggle with is, is, uh, I mean, I think Edmonton, just as rural Alberta would probably benefit from having, or Alberta politics would probably benefit from having more New Democrats from rural Alberta, Edmonton might benefit from having more UCP MLAs, just in terms of balancing that regional dynamic. And I think she probably would have been a strong addition to uh, to a UCP cabinet and perhaps a, a stronger advocate for Edmonton than the current uh, uh, UCP cabinet minister from Edmonton. Yeah, and you know, I, I think about her in a lot of the ways that we use to describe our current finance minister, just would have been really professional, would have been um, kind of rising above that 
partisanship and that sniping that happens in the house like she would have been there to work she would have had no time mm. for all of this kind of like pettiness that happens in the ledge on twitter that sort of thing and i really think it would have been great to elevate political discourse especially uh, within the ucp caucus to have someone like her there who is going to insist on you know maturity and like let's just sit down and get the job done okay next question What's the biggest political issue in in 2019 in Alberta? And we've kind of talked about, we've talked about this already. Uh, so I'm very interested to hear what your guys' choices are. But the uh, the listeners chose budget cuts as uh, as the biggest political issue of 2019, and this is certainly something that's fresh in everybody's mind, which which probably contributed to uh, to this being one of the big issues. So your choices. Natalie, I, I I have an extension, or I guess more specific in budget cuts, which sure. was um, cuts to rural physician compensation, which I know is pretty mm-hmm. niche, but I think it's really important to talk about, especially considering that rural Alberta went predominantly UCP, and and now they are going to suffer under some of the choices made in this budget. So for those who don't know, um, rural physicians are often scheduled and work differently than physicians that work in urban centers. Uh, as an example, um, Rural physicians are all often scheduled one week of the month, and they are on call for those seven days straight, 24 hours. And while they are on call, they get paid a stipend. And that stipend uh, was dropped from something in like the mid-20s-ish dollars an hour to eleven fifty an hour. And the reason this is significant is because um, these physicians often, because they only have to, they're only able to work one week a month in that community just based on scheduling, based on availability, based on other physicians that also want work, they're living in a community one week of the month. So they're having to set themselves up a home there, they're staying in a hotel because these hospitals, I'm thinking of one just south of Edmonton, they don't have on-call rooms for these physicians to stay in. So these physicians are actually you know, keeping multiple homes depending on where they work, where their families are, to be on call to be in the hospital within 30 minutes. That's actually changed to four hours now. Um, but they they used to have to be called into the hospital and arrive within 30 minutes. So often they were keeping homes in these small towns where they were working. And they were covering those costs through this on-call stipend. And that's not to say that they weren't getting paid for the work that they were doing fee-for-service-wise. But these additional costs of living that they're having to have in order to provide medical services in rural areas that are often crucial, like emergency room doctors, um, obstetricians, uh, GP anesthesia uh, physicians, they are the ones that are going to be affected the most by this. And a lot of them are now actually saying, like, it's this is a huge cut. This is going to be um, a huge loss of revenue for me. Maybe they're even talking about now how they they can't afford to maintain three or four homes depending on where they're working uh, that month. And this is going to be a huge um, issue, I think, going forward. And that's going to predominantly going to affect rural Albertans. So rural Alberta is the base of the UCP. I mean, our UCP, they, the UCP MLA has got their largest margins, their largest amount of support from rural Alberta. Why do you think, like this kind of seems counterintuitive that you'd be, that the, the UCP government would be doing something like this that would impact access to physicians in rural communities like what why do you think they're doing this or, or like does this make sense or they or is this like an unforced error I, I think it's like an easy place for them to look to like I think that this is kind of like they're the easy target 
right? Like you target physicians who it's hard to have sympathy for them because they do make more money than most people in this province. But that also comes at a cost. Um, you can talk to any physician who's giving up Christmas this year to be on call and talk to them if the money's actually worth missing Christmas this year, right? Like they give up other things and yes, they're compensated for it. But we have to consider if their compensation was fair or not. And I think the argument became like, well, everyone's taking a cut, so these guys can too. Um, what they don't realize is that other provinces actually will compensate better than this now, especially to work in those rural areas. So what is the what is going to be the the perk of staying in Alberta when you could move maybe to BC or Ontario and, and make more and work the same hours? Okay. Tina? Um, I also, um, yes, absolutely, the budget cuts. I feel like I, I chose a different topic and like Natalie, kind of rural issue as well because I figured we'd be talking about budget cuts and people would vote for that anyway. So I wanted to take this time to kind of focus on something that is budget cut related um, but is also kind of quietly bubbling underneath. So it's maybe not the biggest issue, but it'll be the smallest biggest issue, I think, because I think it can blow up. Um, um so big that it could make this year's budget cuts feel like a picnic, frankly, in comparison. And for me, um, that issue is a ticking time bomb that is Alberta's ballooning abandoned oil and gas wells. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that because basically we have the basic deal in Alberta is we have the social contract, right? Oil and gas companies can come drill on your land in exchange for them getting, and they pay you a little bit of rent to be on your land. But to Basically, the deal is that they get to do that and you get to have your land back and they have to clean up their own mess at their expense. It's called the polluter pays principle. It's the law. And um, and but spoiler alert, that's not really what's happening um, these days. And I think more and more um, oil and gas companies are basically dining on the profits and dashing when the cleanup bill's coming, which by law they are required to do. And so this is so they're either kind of filing bankruptcy um, or simply just walking away. And I think it is um, also curiously and interesting to me in that it's actually impacting rural Alberta a fair bit. A lot of these wells are. I mean, there's tons that are in cities as well. And so I think the reason this is so important, and I think it's kind of bubbling underneath the scenes, is that it's um, not only are, are we going to get, we're restuck with paying the cleanup bill, which the government's own numbers say it's about $260 billion, which, I mean, what is the provincial budget? I think this is at least going to be four or five times the actual provincial budget. So it can bankrupt the entire government, all of us. Um, and it's so that's what their own numbers are saying. But the industry's essentially set aside about 1% for this cleanup. And so what the reason why I think it's important in 2019 is that not only are they now not um, paying to clean up the wells, they're now actively choosing not to pay their municipal taxes. And so in March, um, the majority of rural counties, this is... Um, 50-some out of like the 60-some counties we have, said that they are out an unprecedented $81 million in unpaid taxes. And some of these are companies that are operating. They're just actively choosing not to pay their taxes. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think. I mean, if you and I decided, if any of us decided not to pay our taxes, what do you think would happen? There would be collectors and collection and our electricity would get It'd turned be a off. Re- a real call on the phone from the actual Canada Revenue Agency. Right? Exactly. <laughs> the actual Canada Revenue Agency. But... Um, I mean, I can't imagine this UCP government saying, you know what, it's okay, it's been a tough year, you don't want to pay your taxes this year, Dave, would they say that? I just think, no, you need a break. You, you, it's okay if you don't pay your taxes. They would never say that. But, um, you know, as some tend to call this a petrostate, which I'm starting to more and more agree with, um, 
you know, Premier Kenny's let, letting these companies off the hook. So in July, he gave them a $23 million break on their tax bills with our tax money. So we picked up their tax bill in July, and that's because the rural municipalities spoke up. So the minute these rural um, mayors and councillors said, hey, we're out money, these companies aren't paying us, um, Premier Kenny very quickly um, issued cash their way. And then at the same time, they also passed the bill helping municipalities cut taxes even further for corporations. And so instead of making the polluters pay for their property taxes and clean up their mess, which, you know, is the law, as we discussed, um, the government's making us pay their property taxes. And now the UCP government is asking the federal government, that's basically asking all Canadians, to help pay their cleanup bills. So we're covering a bunch of the tax bills. And now they're asking, I mean, it's every single time Premier Kenny has met with the prime minister, um, cash for cleaning up old wells has been on the list. It was on his top five list. He went to Ottawa just recently. Um, It was in his platform. I mean, he's been consistently asking for this money. And I just think this is such a big issue for this government that he's actually asking Trudeau for help and a handout. And it's kind of, I, I find it amusing to me that he spent so long campaigning against this guy, calling him names, actively campaigning against him in Ontario and elsewhere on his tours that he went on. And and yet he has the audacity to say, also give us cash for this cleanup bill, which is, by the way, the law, and they should be doing it. And so I think this is, I mean, for the rural base, I mean, it's, I'm kind of constantly curious about what the government's thinking and sort of attacking their own base this way because they have cut, as you said, Natalie, about uh, physicians. They're forcing these towns to pay more for policing. And um, they're now forcing these towns to cut corporate taxes further um, or property taxes for companies. And at the same time, um, give these companies a break wherever they can. And so there is at least one town that had to freeze all non-essential spending. And so these rural towns are slowly starting to sort of get their voice and be able to speak up. Um, and I think it will be a issue for the government, and it will continue to become a big issue. So it's a small, big issue in my way is sort of my vote. And I think something that we should all care about, because in the end, it's not just them that will get um, that will get really hurt by this, but that we're all ultimately going to pay for it. I think what was also really interesting is that a couple weeks ago, Gary Marr was a former conservative minister in previous PC governments and is now a lobbyist for the oil and gas industry, was on CBC's Alberta at noon a couple of weeks ago. And they did a call-in show around this issue. And so, because he's part of that proposal to the prime minister that Premier Kenny has been um, promoting, which is essentially a handout um, and some sort of convoluted tax credits called flow-through shares that they're pitching. Essentially, it's a subsidy for this industry to pay for their own cleanup. And so when when the host asked him what should... Um, why should we pay? Why should the federal government give this subsidy? He basically said that, well, all Canadians benefited from this activity, so can Canadians should be part of the solution. And I think this is, it's, it's, it's unconscionable to me that, that he's framing it this way, and even though they have benefited and dined, as I said, on that profit, and they chose not to set aside anything from that profit for their cleanup, which they're required to do by law, and now they're dashing. Gary Marr is telling us we actually have to pay for this stuff because we all benefited. It's just so insidious and so unconscionable to me that um, we should be bailing out these dine and dash companies, that um, oil and gas companies. But that's exactly what they're doing. And I, um, for me, it's a massive issue that I think is bubbling under the surface in a way that I think could um, 
I hope becomes a bigger issue, actually. Yeah. And, and it's something that's not necessarily on the mind of people living in the urban centers in Edmonton and Calgary because we don't necessarily see it. But in rural Alberta, it's, it's certainly an issue. And I feel like we should do a specific special episode on yes. this because you sound like you have a lot to I say about it. I will come back and so talk about this. 2020, let's do, a, let's do a, an abandoned oil well episode. Uh, maybe we can find an abandoned oil well to, uh, to live, live uh, record our episode by. There are um, tons in the cities, by the way. Well, you can, you can show me. You show me where they are. Okay. okay. Uh, last question. What is your wish or big, big prediction for 2020 in Alberta politics? Natalie, big go. Prediction. <laughs> oh, boy. Or, or your wish for, uh, for uh, change in Alberta politics or something to happen in Alberta <laughs> politics. I want Twitter to disappear. Okay. That, Does that, that count? <laughs> that is t- totally reasonable. Probably like the most reasonable recommendation I've heard. Uh, no, you know what I want? I, I want there that. to be more civility in politics. Like, I don't want anyone from government or opposition to be acting unhinged. I don't want there to be, like, a lack of civility or a lack of decorum. Like, let's all be professionals here. This would never happen. Like, this would never fly in the real world. I could never speak this way to one of my clients. I could never speak this way to my staff or to a partner at my firm that I work at. So why is it okay to speak that way to your your colleagues in the house. Like, I don't think politics is an excuse to be a complete ass in the workplace, yet that seems to be the norm, not only here, but in every legislature in this, this country, basically, maybe in North America and the world. And I have a big issue with that. Like, this is why reasonable, smart people don't want to run for office. It's because they don't want to have to stoop to this level. So let's expect more from ourselves and each other and, and start acting like adults. That is excellent. Thank you very much. Here, here. Tina. Um, my biggest, um, I didn't say prediction, was my biggest wish um, for 2019. And my wish is that um, Albertans realize the power they have and they exercise it en masse. Um, and um, Adam, you actually talked about the carpet bombing strategy. Um, you brought it up in the last episode, which, by the way, was a great episode with, with our friend Michael Jans. But I think Kenny's, um, the carpet bombing strategy of coming, what is it, at cities, post-secondaries, doctors like we've talked about, teachers, nurses, um, lab techs, rural councils, in this kind of short period is basically to keep everybody scrambling, focused on their own house, and keeping them a little bit divided and siloed, and which kind of breeds a sense of hopelessness that also comes with it when it's all coming at you and so fast. And I think that's a strategy because I think he knows that a real threat to his power is collective power of working people, and especially public sector workers. And um, I mean, he knows. He knows solidarity movements are powerful. And it's only when, you know, folks from different ages and backgrounds and industries come together can we fight back some of the austerity and abuse of power in this um, neoliberal project of privatization, deregulation we seem to be on um, with this government. And so I think to build solidarity among these different groups means we have to kind of connect the dots. Um, that the same kinds of forces that are pushing for privatization in our public health care system are the same forces behind um, the climate crisis. And I can't think of a um, better collective action en masse than a general strike. And that's where we will withhold our labor to win changes that are in the public interest for you and me and everybody else. And so that's the best and most effective, I think, countervailing power we have. And in the last few months, we've seen these protests in Chile, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, India, France, Hong Kong, you name it. And they are all fighting these same forces that have now arrived in our doorstep in Alberta. And so that's my wish for 2019, 2020, general strike. Okay. That's, <laughs> well, we'll see. we'll see what happens in 2020. Thank you, guys. So I'm just going to give you my quick 
prediction or my big my wish for 2020 in Alberta politics is, and this is going to sound so cheesy, but I'll explain it in a second, is hope. Uh, hope. Uh, I, I really hope that the parties start, both the UCP and the NDP, start focusing on politics that will actually improve people's lives. And I say this for the UCP, I would really like the government to quit blaming our problems on outside enemy forces mm. uh, and actually face the economic and political challenges facing Alberta, whether that be an economy, the economy, the, the fact that the economy is in a transition period, the fact that climate change is real and the world is moving in one direction. And if we're not uh, if we're not going to d- address climate change, we're le- you know there's a strong possibility we'll have uh, solutions imposed upon us by whether it be by the federal government or other provinces. And I think Alberta is in a strong position to uh, make decisions about our future, and, and we have the potential to be a real leader on this kind of stuff. For the NDP, it's going to be quit chasing the scandal of the day uh, and actually present a real social democratic agenda that is actually going to engage and provide. Uh, hope and an actual alternative for working Albertans. Go Green New Deal. We're going to dip into our mailbag because we've got one question yep. uh, from a frequent commenter, Mountain Ted. He sent us a question in every episode, right? Dave? I think just about. I think it's almost dedication. every episode. Yeah, Mountain Ted is one of our biggest fans uh, or most dedicated question answers. So thank you. Should have him thank on the podcast much. someday. Yeah, whoever you are, Mountain Ted, you should come on the pod someday. We'd love, to, we'd love to have you on. That'd be great. So first of all, Mountain Ted says thanks for a great year and all the best to the podcast team for 2020. That includes the two of you. Well, uh, thank you. So thanks. Uh, here's Mountain Ted's question: With sheer out, how will the CPC leadership search? impact Alberta politics, especially the UCP. So what do you think, Dave? Well, I mean, the, the, the United Conservative Party is essentially a provincial, operates as a provincial branch of the Federal Conservative Party. They're, the provincial and federal conservative parties in this province are, are united politically like we haven't seen in decades. Um, so yeah, I think it will have an impact, uh, especially if there is ends up being a strong candidate from Alberta. I mean, I know Jason Kenney has said he's not going to run, but you know, we'll see politi- politicians change their mind and circumstances change. Um, uh, if Obviously, if Kenny, Kenny does decide to change his mind and run, that will have a huge impact on the UCP because they'll need to find a new leader. But I don't necessarily know if that's going to happen. I don't necessarily think that's going to happen. All right. What do you think, Tina? I think um, the consensus is, and I mean, Natalie, correct me if I'm wrong about what you're hearing sort of in your movements, but I think the consensus was that Shears biggest um, failings were his lack of acknowledgement of LGBTQ rights and kind of acknowledge his social conservatism and his r- deep and utter lack of, of acknowledging that climate change is an issue and putting forward remotely a um, respectable policy to, towards addressing it. And I think it would be so interesting to see who comes forward, who at least has to acknowledge climate change in a serious way. And if they do, I think it will be at odds with Jason Kenney's extractive, populist, petro-nationalist approach. And so I think that would be interesting to see that play out. Hmm. And finally, Natalie. I wish we had a whole episode to talk about this. So well, I'm, we, I'm, we will in 2020. We'll have yeah. you back. I'm Well, I'm a federal conservative at heart. That's always been where my political involvement has been. And I, I'm not going to lie. I've been waiting for this sheer resignation since like May of 2017. Like I could not <laughs> wait for this day. It made me so happy. Uh, but Why? I'm kind of curious why. Oh, I, I just didn't think he was the right guy to win us the election in 2019. Mm-hmm. I didn't think he had a vision for the movement or the for the party. And that proved to be right uh, in a lot of different ways, just broadly, just lack of lack of uh, personality and, and lack mm-hmm. of definition for what the movement should be. Uh, but I think for what this means in Alberta, activists like me are going to be even more burnt out than we actually are going forward. I mean, it's been a really busy, mm. I don't even know how many years now. We had a federal leadership race in 2017. We had a PC leadership race 
wait, when was that? 2016? 2017. I think they were both in 2017. It started 2016 and then the merger referendum and then the UCP leadership race. And then we had, what else did we even have? The provincial election. Provincial election, federal federal election, election. a municipal election. Like we're exhausted. I'm exhausted. And I didn't even volunteer in the last federal election very much. Um, I think that we're going to see um, a lot of divisions in the party open up again, not only provincially, but also federally. Mm. And it's going to be really important that the leaders within these movements and these parties really work towards unifying everyone once this is all said and done. Um, leadership races can be very divisive and very dangerous for parties if they can't come together after. I think we saw that slightly with the, the federal leadership race this last time. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that this time it's just a quick race. Uh, high barriers to entry so that we don't have 13 candidates in the field again. Not the 13th ballot oh <laughs> victory. <laughs> no 13th ballot. Let's have like a like a quick leadership race. Let's have the winner be chosen and um, bring everyone together. And I hope that the people that come forward are going to be, you know, people that have a vision and movement or a vision for where this movement should go. And when I'm looking for what I want the leader of this party to be, like I want it to be someone that's better than me and the rest of us in every single way. I want them to be smarter. I want them to be more thoughtful. I want them to be more charismatic. Like we should aspire to have our political leaders be better versions of us in every way. That's why we should want them to lead us. And I'm really hoping someone of that caliber decides to step up and run. Wow. That was a great answer. Thank Thank you. you both for your thoughts today. And thanks to Mountain Ted for the question. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much to our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for helping us put the show together Thanks, and, Adam. and making us sound so great. Thank you, Adam. It's been a wonderful year. It was all you. Oh. Your voices made this sound great. But yours is pretty good, too. Yeah. The right. closer you get to the mic. <laughs> it's, it's a deep baritone. <laughs> uh, thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting the show. And thank you very much to our special guests today, Tina Fays and Natalie Pawn. It was wonderful to have you guys back or have you guys on the podcast, Natalie, to have you back on the podcast. I think this is my third one this year. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And Tina, to have you on for the first time. And I hope to have you both on uh, again in 2020 because I'm sure there'll be, I mean, as we've been talking about today, there'll be no shortage of stuff to talk about uh, with the conservative leadership race, with everything the Alberta government is doing, with the NDP, with the federal liberals, with, you know, everything. Um, So I'll, uh, yeah, thank you very much and and happy holidays, guys. Thank you. Send us your feedback uh, or ask any questions you have for our next episode in 2020. Uh, you can get us on Twitter and Instagram at, at DaveBerta on the DaveBerta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. And please feel free to leave a review, uh, a positive review, hopefully. Five uh, stars. Five stars, five out of five. Don't leave a review if it's not five stars. Well, you can... You can we have to, no, you have to sell your podcast. Man. Okay, yeah, five star, five stars only, guys. Uh, a re- <laughs> leave a review wherever you download the podcast. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for listening uh, to everybody uh, out there who's listened in 20, 2019 and before. Uh, we really, uh, we really love uh, love hearing feedback from you guys and uh, and love we let as long as you guys keep listening, we'll keep on talking about Alberta politics. So we'll see you all in twenty twenty. <laughs>